I was making announcements this morning earlier about the fall festival and different volunteers that we have, and I forgot to mention that if you have volunteered for a game or an activity, uh, please see me after the service. I have some specific notes as to what you can anticipate the game being like. For those that may have some concerns or questions, we've got it all typed out for you so that you'll know what to expect come Saturday. Uh, so please see me. I'm used to having my wife sit down right there in front of me and she'll give me this look that says I'm forgetting something, but uh, she's at home uh, dealing with a, a sick baby. So if you would just keep uh, Ruthie and, and Levi in your prayers. In your Bibles this morning, would you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 uh, this morning. We're going to be looking at two verses, and actually really one phrase from verse number 17, but we'll look at verses 16 and 17 here in just a moment, in a sermon that I've titled, The Naturally Supernatural Life. The Naturally Supernatural Life. It's interesting to think about how our lives are often different in and out of church. Sometimes we, we do this without really thinking about it, where we end up being two different people. We're one person while we're in church and we're around church people, and then we're com someone completely different everywhere else. Some of us will go so far and will speak a completely different way, trying to sound more refined and more polished. We want people in church to think of us as wise, as extremely knowledgeable. So we'll put on this persona when we come into this building to try and convince people of this, that we're someone different than who we are out in the world. For others, it may be something else, like they'll have a different laugh when they're around church people. Uh, some people have a work laugh. Other people have a church laugh. Either way, some of you are working on the church laugh right now. Uh, either way... There's a good one. Either way, for some reason, there is this mentality that we have to be different people when we come to church. And not everyone is this way, but it's probably a general practice of many. A few weeks ago, we discussed, as we were talking about the holiness of God and our response to that, that there should be this threshold mentality, that every time we come to church, we should be understanding that we're coming before the presence of God. So there, there should be, in some degree, there should be a change that takes place as we come into God's house. Uh, we need to recognize that as we come into the church, again, we're coming into the Lord's house, and we're coming before the Lord's presence. There should be this mindset of approaching the Lord with reverence, with fear, with humility. There should be a difference in how we come to church and how we behave in church as opposed to anywhere else. But the problem comes when we take this to the absolute extreme and actually end up being more irreverent than anything else. We come to church and we are so spiritual that we have no expression on our faces at all sometimes. Some of us act as if the moment we come into church, we put a sign around our necks that says, do not disturb. And we don't want people talking with us. We want to be extremely holy and we're not going to even crack a smile because, well, this is my spiritual face, so leave me alone. And it, strangely enough, many of these people seem to flip a switch the moment church is over and they're walking to their car in the parking lot. It's like they're a brand new person. They, they came to life as soon as they exited the building. 
Someone has called this syndrome Sunday morning religion. And let me tell you something. This is one of the biggest problems that we see in Christianity today. It's the idea that we can praise, that we can worship God on Sunday, and then we can get back to the rest of our lives Monday through Saturday. When Sunday rolls around, we have to put on our religious clothes. We have to look the part. We have to act the part during the time that we're sitting in church. But as soon as church is over, we can revert back to our normal lives and our normal selves when we're back at home or at the restaurant where we're eating after church is over. There's something about entering this building on a Sunday morning that causes people not to act normal. But once they leave, they can go back to being normal. Their conversation changes when inside these walls. They're no longer saying things that normally would be acceptable in their, in, their, in their eyes anywhere else or the opposite we see. That they're saying things here in church that they would otherwise never say in their normal everyday conversation. People change into this spiritual mode when they come to church and then they, they switch back into normal mode when they exit this building. And for a good reason, right? Well, we want people to think the best of us. We want people thinking that our lives are perfectly in order, so we'll put on this specific persona once we're here within these walls because we don't want people really knowing that our lives are an absolute mess. So we'll put on this persona, we'll flip into spiritual mode, we'll give people the impression that at least for an hour a week we're perfect, and hopefully they'll think that that's the way that every day of our lives is like outside of, of church. We certainly don't want people thinking that our lives are an absolute mess and are in shambles. We definitely don't want people thinking that we're not spiritual. So we'll switch into spiritual mode for a few hours a week to give off a certain impression, and then we'll get back to life as we know it. Seems a little artificial though, doesn't it? You don't need a rocket scientist to show you how this Sunday morning religion is a bunch of garbage. If we're going to be true followers of Christ, we can't be one person one day and a completely different person six days out of the week. How is it though that this happens? How do people adopt this habit of switching into spiritual mode and then into normal mode? How are they able to worship God on Sundays and then have everything changed for them the moment they leave this building and head to their vehicles? And the reason is because many people have bought into this belief that life is divided into two divisions. It is divided into that which is secular and it is divided into that which is sacred. Therefore, when we come to church on Sundays, we leave the secular at the door and we embrace the sacred when we come into this building. And as soon as church is over and we've exited the building, we leave the sacred where it belongs here in church and we embrace the secular again as we're walking to our cars. Essentially what happens is that we're two different people. We're one person in church, and we're someone completely different outside of church. For an hour, maybe two, maybe three hours, we'll put on a show. We'll wear the nice clothes. We'll talk a little different. For, we'll act a little different. We'll give off a different vibe to people and do our best to live the sacred life here in the building. And then, like nothing ever happened, we'll drop the act once we're out of this building and get back to our, our normal lives and what they really look like six days out of the week. Imagine, though, what would happen if you were forced to spend all of your time here at church. If we bolted the doors shut and said, you're living here seven days a week. 
No? Not on board with that? What if you had to work here? What if you had to eat here? What if you had to sleep here? What if you had to raise your family here? Would your behavior change? Would your sense of normal change? Would you begin to act religious? I'm doing a lot of the air quotes, I'm sorry. Would you act religious all the time because you're suddenly aware that everything you do is done in the presence of God and in his house? Now, I'm not expecting anyone to live at church. And in fact, I'll kick you out if you pull out a cot and try and lay down and sleep. But as we discussed last week, that every believer in Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as the temples of the Holy Spirit, we're in fact always living and doing all things in the presence of God's house. We are God's house. We shouldn't fall into this rut of playing Sunday morning religion where we act as if there's two divisions to our life, one here sacred in God's house, and then out in the world, we're back into the secular. Every day should be the same. Every day should be lived in the spirit where we're finding reasons to worship and praise God continually. This doesn't mean that every moment of your day you need to be praying or you need to be reading the, 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 the Bible or you need to be singing to God or thinking about God. But it does mean that Christ should be at the center of your day all the time. If Christ is living and indwelling you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think about should be out of a desire to bring Him glory. We should be mindful that wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever you say, you are always representing Christ. And we should never do anything to bring shame to His name. Our reputation and our testimony is so important for us to maintain because they can be extremely difficult to restore once they have been ruined and tarnished. One thing that Ruthie and I are striving to instill within our own children is the importance of maintaining a positive testimony and a reputation. We try to remind our children of two things. That no matter who they are, no matter where they end up being, they represent us and they represent God. If they misbehave, if they get in trouble in any way, it is going to reflect on Ruthie and I as parents because our children bear our name. It becomes even more important as a follower of Christ because not only do you carry your own name, your own family name everywhere that you go, but now you also carry the name of Christ. It's one thing to bring shame and reproach to your own family name, which you shouldn't do anyways, but it's a whole other thing to bring shame and reproach, reproach to the name of Christ. My dad would tell me every time I left the house, you bear my name where you go. Wear it well. And what I've tried to tell my kids is every time they leave, remember who you are and remember whose you are. This is why we can't be guilty of separating our lives into two divisions. If you did this as a kid and you lived a completely different life outside your home as opposed to inside your home with your parents, eventually it's going to catch up with you. I grew up with my father being my pastor. And he knew everyone 
and everyone knew him. It was incredibly annoying because everywhere I went, someone knew my dad. I had no clue who these people were, but they knew my dad. I was running into people who knew him, and I felt like he had eyes on me anywhere I was. He didn't have to follow me around. They had spies. My parents had spies everywhere. Word would eventually make it back to my dad of the shenanigans that I was doing at my friend's house all throughout the week, and I would pay for it dearly. I'd come home and say, I hear you were at your friend's house, and I hear you were doing, how, how, how do you know? How do you know? And then lo and behold, he knows my friend's mom. He knows my friend's parents. Are you kidding me right now? I couldn't, couldn't do anything. Everything I did came back to bite me because they knew my dad, and my dad knew them. It was the worst growing up that way. What many of us need to learn, though, is that there is no possible way that we can properly separate our lives into two divisions. And I learned that really quick. So I had to always be on guard, expecting that anywhere I was, there was someone that my dad knew who was going to be watching what I was doing. We need to learn that there's no properly proper way to ever separate our lives into two divisions, and it's not worth it. You're not going to succeed where everyone else has failed. It cannot be done. And honestly, when we restrict God's presence to a specific location, the church, our lives are going to suffer. People will often say that politics and religion don't mix and that faith should be a private matter. Well, they say this because believers have the Holy Spirit dwelling, or because believers, rather, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Any line dividing the secular from the sacred is completely erased. It's gone. It's not a matter of you acting spiritual. You're spiritual if you're a believer. You're not the temple of God for an hour a week. God has taken up permanent residence in your life the moment you're saved. God doesn't do that and then check out for six days out of the week only to return again on Sundays and say, okay, time to put on the sacred again because now it's my time. You had your time for six days on the secular. Now it's on my, I'm on the clock. He doesn't do that. Therefore, responding to life spiritually should be the most natural and normal response for us as believers. We should be reverent and respectful when we're in a church service, but that's not the main point. The point is that we as believers are God's temple, and we should be acting like that every single day, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the geographical location. This is the message that our passage is teaching us here in Colossians chapter 3. Look at verses 16 and 17 here in Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Do all. That is the, that is the phrase that we're going to focus our attention on here this morning. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3, Colossians 3, verse number 17. There are several key words and key phrases in these verses, but again, the one I want to draw your attention to, the one I want ingrained in your mind as you leave this building and think that you can go back into the secular division, I want you to be thinking about how you're supposed to be acting spiritual and 
Thinking about all that you do should be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. But first, I want to draw your attention to the beginning of verse number 17. It says, whatsoever ye do. Whatsoever you do. You see, it's not whatsoever you do in church or whatsoever you do at home or whatsoever you do in everyday life. It is, the command is simply whatsoever you do. God just throws a blanket, makes a blanket statement commanding that everything we do, not just in a specific building, not just at home, but everywhere that we are, God has required everything that we do to be done in the name of Jesus Christ. In every area of life, this makes no distinction, no distinction between your home life and your church life because there should be no distinction in the life of a believer. They both should be the same. You should be the same person in church that you are out in the regular world. Now, for some of us, that means that we need to change a few things. There are some things that we have to change. There are sacrifices that we have to make because at present, some of us are doing everything we can to keep these divisions in place. And we've mentioned that those that act a certain way in church, but there are others who put on and act outside of church. They might blend in more in the secular world and do this on purpose. They might do this for a variety of reasons. Perhaps they don't want to be viewed any different by their coworkers or by their friends that are out in the secular world. So they do everything they can to hide the fact that they're a child of God. They don't want people thinking that they're going to church. They don't want people thinking that they're a Christian. They don't want people thinking that they read their Bible and they pray every day. They want people thinking like they're like just like one of them. So they don't look at them differently. They don't treat them differently. And they don't think of them any differently than, than what they want them to be thought of. There are people that try to hide the fact that they're a child of God. And for a variety of different reasons, it is only going to cause, though, problems and headache and will inevitably lead to a ruined testimony. Such a hypocritical lifestyle is no way to live your life. Getting our lives in gear might involve some serious lifestyle changes, but they're worth it. There may be some habits that we need to quit. There may be some friendships that we need to break. There may be some places that we never return to. Depending on how much you have indulged in that secular division of your life, you could be in for some serious and major life changes. For those who are concerned about changing too much too quick, let me just remind you what your Savior has done for you. I don't think that anything we have to sacrifice to make right in his eyes comes anywhere close to what your Savior has done for you. And let me just add that it's not out of duty and obligation that we need to change our lives. It's not, oh, pastor's saying we need to do this because of what God done, done for us. Fine, I'll do this just because I can't match what Jesus has done for me, so I'll change it. No, I don't want you doing this out of duty and obligation. That shouldn't be the way that we're, that we're living our lives and making changes. It should be done out of a desire to please the one who loves you and the one whom you love as well. And before you think that the Christian life is dull, that it is boring, that God doesn't want you to have any fun at all and doesn't want you to keep these divisions where you can have fun out of church and then come and be boring, bored in church. No, that's not the case at all. Many people think this way. Many Christians think this way, and frankly, I don't understand why they do. I know that there are pleasures to enjoy out in the world, but I've never come across anything that has offered me any sort of lasting satisfaction. Some people make God to be this cosmic killjoy. He's just ruining all of our fun. 
He won't let me have any fun out in the world. And he's got all these rules that I have to follow. And so it's no fun coming to church. That's why I need these divisions. That's the sacred part in church. And then I get to have fun out in the world. I need this for my own sanity. Because God is this cosmic killjoy. He's here to ruin my life, to give me all these rules and regulations. Do this, don't do that. Let me set the record straight. When God tells us not to do something, do you know what he's actually telling you? He's saying, don't do this because it's actually going to end up hurting you. God knows where true and lasting happiness is found. So when he says, thou shall not, he's only saying, don't do this because you'll end up regretting it. And when he says, thou shalt, he's saying, help yourself to happiness. Enjoy what I've provided. I get so annoyed with people when they suggest that God has set all of these rules and all of these regulations which render believers basically prisoners. God richly blesses his children and wants them to enjoy his creation and all the many things which he has provided. But he wants us to enjoy all these wonderful things with Christ in mind. Now, what does it mean to enjoy these things and to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, it says in verse 17 of Colossians 3, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. What does that mean? Well, it means to live in harmony with God's will. It means to submit to God's authority. It means to be dependent upon God's power. When you're living your life according to the will of God, you will inevitably do those things that bring glory to him. But the only way that you can live according to God's will is to know what God's will is for your life, which you can only know from reading God's word. So what do we find at the end of the day? What you should be doing? Very simple, straightforward, be in the Word. Read the Bible. Do you think there's a reason why we're stressing Bible reading? It's a Leviticus, though, for crying out loud. How many sacrifices, how many offerings can we read about? You're right. What was I thinking? How dare I suggest you read that book of the Bible? My goodness, there's no application to that today. But no! It's all there! Everything that we're reading about is a picture of what Jesus came to do. A picture of how we need to be approaching Christ. How we need to be living our own lives. Every word of it is applicable. It's not your go-to passage, I'll give you that. And I don't think I mentioned this, but we're moving into 1st and 2nd Corinthians after that. So you're getting a little taste of the New Testament. So once you're done with Leviticus, move on into 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Don't skip a beat. Every single day, read your Bible. And let me just say, we're only asking you to read one chapter a day. That is not a big ask. That is very, very manageable. Honestly, you should be doing more than that. But so we can keep track of you, do at least that. Do at least that. The more you're in the word of God, the more God is going to reveal his truth to you. The more he's going to enlighten your mind and your eyes to see him in a different level. The more you're going to be able to do as Colossians 3 verse 17 says, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's going to be done with a mind to glorify Christ. Because your mind is going to constantly be on what you were reading and what you were applying to your own life. 
Read the word of God. Memorize scripture. If only we asked you to memorize scripture too. Oh, that's right, we did. Can anyone tell me what the memory verse is for this month? Don't do this. Someone, page. Perfect. Another obscure book of the Bible. Who would have thought there's something good in that little book? Someone did. There's a reason that you're needing to be reading scripture, applying it to your life, hiding God's word in your heart. These are things that are going to come up as you're going about your day-to-day life. God is going to remind you of his presence. God is going to remind you that he's in control. God is going to remind you when circumstances go from favorable to unfavorable that he's still on his throne and that he's working even in that to bring about his will in your life. Don't forget it. Be in the word of God as often as you can. There's a purpose in all of this. As you are in the word of God, committing it to memory, God is going to show you what his will is for your life. Now, first of all, I want you to notice, as we think about how we're supposed to do whatsoever, everything we do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, I want you to notice, first of all, what God approves. What God approves. Again, verse, six, verse 17 says, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and Father by him. We need to first understand what God approves. In God's word, even with life in general, a person's name and his character are usually linked. They're intertwined. Therefore, if we're going to be doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, we should only be doing those things which God approves. One of the techniques used in merchandising is to have a well-known personality endorse a certain product. One, uh, we see this to the point where they'll attach a, a famous person's reputation to the specific product. And we see this in, in almost everything across the board, uh, whether in, in cologne, in food, in clothing, you name it, they have celebrity personas who are there endorsing the different products. And they do this because they, they want to appeal to a certain group of people. They want to let you know that this person, he's staking his reputation on this specific product, and if you like this person, buy that product. This is the idea here. Um, they did this with a breakfast cereal known as Wheaties. It seemed as if every single week they're putting a different professional athlete on the cover of the Wheaties box uh, of cereal, which was supposed to attract people to buy and to eat that cereal. Everyone that was interested in sports was wanting to get Wheaties because they felt as if they'd be somehow associated with the athlete that was on the picture of the box. If they ate that, maybe they'd be as strong and fit as whoever the athlete was on the picture. So much so that when people do something great physically, people often say, oh, it looks like someone ate their Wheaties this morning. I'm sure you've heard that. What was basically happening was the athlete, not me, I'm sorry. I'll run to the end of the parking lot and I'll be winded. The athlete was putting his stamp of approval on that cereal. In a similar way, to do everything in the name of Jesus means to only do those things which Jesus approves or which Jesus endorses. Everything that we do needs to be consistent with his character. 
Look at it the other way. You should never do or say anything that we cannot sign Jesus' name to. Some people take this idea of doing everything in the name of the Lord to the extreme, though. They make Christianity out to be obedience to all the set of rules and regulations. And just to be clear, there are rules that God has established in the Bible, but Christianity is so much more than just a list of rules. As adults, we almost get turned off when we hear that there are certain rules that need to be followed because we think that rules are more for children than anyone else. I already know everything. Once a person has grown and matured, he doesn't need to be told about all these different rules that he has to follow. Children that are immature, they're the ones that need it. They need structure. They need to be told what the rules are and how to live their lives. They need to be told not to touch the hot stove. They need to be reminded to use their manners, to remember please and thank you. The more mature child doesn't need all these reminders because they eventually learn what their parents' expectations are without having to be given a list of rules. I can tell you that it brings Ruthie and I joy when we hear Lily, our oldest child, tell us about how she faced a certain situation that we hadn't addressed. We didn't tell her, okay, listen, today you're going to deal with this, and this is how we want you to handle it. We'll hear about it after the fact, and she'll come and say, listen, I dealt with the situation. This is what this person said, and I knew that wasn't what needed to be said, and so I told them that they shouldn't speak that way or I shouldn't you know, be a part of that, so I just turned and I left. There's so much joy that parents get when, when they hear about a child that has matured to the point where they don't need to be told every single little instruction for them to know what the expectation is. There have been several occasions where she's done this, where she says, I knew you wouldn't want me doing this. I knew you wouldn't want me saying this, so I didn't. She did what she felt was consistent with her parents' character. In any set of rules, people can find loopholes. But there is no loophole in the character of Christ. That is why the Bible is not a list of rules. It contains many good and great principles. The most important of all is to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. We ought to be able to put Jesus' stamp of approval on everything that we do. What God approves. Second, Notice the authority of Christ. The authority of Christ. Again, it says here in verse 17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. The authority of Christ. Not only does the name of Christ stand for his approval, but it also grants authority. If I signed a check, and I handed it to you, you now have the authority to go and cash that check that bears my name on it. When a 180-pound police officer is directing traffic, and he stands with his hand out like this in front of the 18-wheeler, is it his power that stops the 18-wheeler? No. He is appealing to an authority that is higher than himself. The truck stops not because the 180-pound police officer is strong enough to stop the 18-wheeler dead in its tracks, but because of the authority that the police officer has been granted. There's no way, no way 
that an 18-wheeler is going to be stopped by the power and the force of a police officer, but his badge and his uniform carry the authority of the government that he represents. There's an important lesson in here for us as believers to learn regardless to our, or regarding rather, our authority as believers, our authority over Satan. We don't have authority over Satan because we're stronger or wiser or more cunning and crafty than he is. Our authority over Satan has absolutely nothing to do with ourselves because none of us are a match for him. Yet, when Jesus sent out his disciples to minister, listen to what he told them in Luke 10 and verse 19. He said, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. What Jesus was telling them is that he, the Lord of all creation, is giving his disciples authority over all the power of the enemy. There is a clear difference between power and authority. The policeman stops the truck through authority, not power. Believers have the ability to overcome Satan, not with power, but with Christ's authority. Knowing the name of Christ grants us that authority. And when you realize this, when you really realize this, it opens your eyes when you start praying in Jesus' name. That you have Christ's authority granted to you as a believer. It changes how you pray because you're not praying with this mindset that I don't know if he can really do this. You're praying with this mindset that he has granted you authority that is power over everything. Think about how we end the majority of our prayers. Do we not use the words, in Jesus' name we pray? Nearly every time we end our prayers, we end it with a variation of that, if not those exact words. Interestingly enough, there is never been a a pattern or a formula described in scripture that says you must end every prayer with these words in Jesus name we pray it never has come up not that it's wrong to be ending your prayer that way but it's as if we're putting God's stamp of approval on the end of our prayer that we've just prayed for when we close our prayer and and say those words regardless of what we pray it's, it's as if we're saying Jesus wanted me to pray this in Jesus name we pray It doesn't matter how selfish our prayers may be or how we're coming to God at times with a a list of ultimatums. We close the prayer the same way, basically telling God that Jesus has given us the authority to pray for all that we're asking for right now. Our prayers, I, I, I think, in many cases, end up being almost like spiritual forgery where we're attaching Christ's name to the end of it even though what we're asking for is not at all associated with the will of God. Not all the time, but in many instances, this is the case. No prayer will have Christ's authority if it doesn't first have his approval. Many people are forging Jesus' name on the end of their prayers, but those prayers are never going to be answered because they're not prayed prayed according to the will of God. We need to live every day with the confidence that we have Christ's authority in our lives as believers. Every aspect of our lives should be lived with the authority of Christ's name. So raise your children, work diligently, take care of your home, enjoy your time of leisure, do everything with the authority of Christ's name. 
And before we can ever have Christ's authority, we have to first be submitted to him in obedience. One of the greatest lessons that we will ever learn is that in order for us to ever have authority in the first place, we must first submit ourselves to authority. There's a great example of this found in Luke chapter 7 when a Roman centurion approached Jesus to have his servant healed. The centurion sent some Jewish friends to go and to ask Jesus to, to heal his servant. But as Jesus was coming to the man's house after he received the message, the centurion sent Jesus another message. And listen to what he says in Luke 7, verses 6 through 10. The centurion is delivering this message through messengers because he doesn't want Jesus to come to his house. Notice what he says in Luke 7, 6 through 10. Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. And notice what he says. For I also am a, am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. But you notice what he said there? He says, For I also am a man set under authority. The centurion was not a Jewish man, but he had such a great understanding of authority. It says Jesus marveled at him. He had many soldiers, he says, under his command. He can tell them to go, tell them to come, tell them to whatever, do whatever he wants them to do. He can command them and they'll do it. But he only, he says, had this authority because he was under someone else's authority. Again, he says, for I also am a man set under authority. And then he goes to describe the authority that he has over other people. So he says, first, I had to submit myself under a specific authority in order to gain authority of the one above me. The centurion then applied the same principle of authority to the work of Christ. So what he basically said was this, Jesus, because of your submission to God the Father, you have authority over this sickness that can heal the servant. All you need to do is speak a single word and my servant will be healed. It's a tragedy when we live our lives without that authority of Christ. No one can be an effective minister of the gospel without first submitting himself under the authority of the word of God. There are far too many believers who have no victory or little victory over the sins of the world, the flesh, and the devil because they're not willing to submit themselves to the authority of God. Many believers are living in a state, in a constant state of disarray because they're fighting against spiritual leadership that God has instituted in the church when they should be victorious in their prayer life and have victory over the flesh and the world and the devil. Now, third, I want you to notice the honor of Christ. The honor of Christ. Look again in Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus means doing all things for his honor. Every once in a while, people may hand you a card 
that states they have given a gift to some organization in your name or in your honor. Everyone gotten any card like this? Oh, we've, we've donated to this charity in your name, in your honor. Sometimes you think, well, it would have been nice if you just gave me the money. Um, but, okay, thank you for this nice little card that says you gave something to someone else. But, occasionally this is done. One thing we must be careful of is not taking the honor for something we've done in Christ's name. People may praise you and thank you for what you've done. And in those instances, I've always tried my best to pass honor to where it truly is deserving, and that is on to Christ. When we're living our lives as the temples of God, we're, living, we're really living for one purpose, and that purpose is to bring honor and glory to God. And this is the truth that is spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. 1 Peter 4 verse 11 says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It goes through almost everything. Whatever you say, whatever you do, let it all be done to bring glory to God. I'll read that verse again, 1 Peter 4.11. Highlight this verse, underline it, memorize it. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God gives. Everything we're able to do is done because God has allowed us the ability to do it. Recognize that. Give recognition to God for it. It says that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul, he echoed this same thought. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 31, he says, Wherefore, there, uh, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It is only the life that is lived with the approval of Christ and in the authority of Christ that will bring honor to Christ. Living in the Spirit means that we aren't doing anything that would dishonor the name of Christ. Imagine how different this world would actually be if every believer embraced this mentality to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to live the naturally supernatural life. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for... Lord, how, how real your word is. I pray, Lord, that as we consider what we've looked at here this morning and how important it is to do everything, whatever it is that we do, Lord, whether in church, whether out at home, whether at our places of work, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, may it be true that we're doing everything in the name of our Lord Jesus. Lord, seeking to do what he's approved and Lord, ultimately trying to make sure that we are honoring him as we do things with his authority. I know, Lord, that this is a struggle as we are going to face challenges and give in to the flesh. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remain faithful and true. Lord, that we would honor you in such a way that others would see that your grace has brought a transforming power and presence within us, that they too would be drawn to the Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.